My husband says the backup quarterback is the best job in the NFL, so I'm going to just go with backup quarterback. I'm happy to be your backup quarterback, and it reduces my chances of head trauma, I think, today. <laughs> Flat Park Church, it is good, as always, to be with you. We are in the last regular Sunday of Lent, which you know makes me sad. I've said this here before. I love Lent. I love this season. And I know that sounds weird and possibly a little bit crazy to you. But my goal for today is that you leave here with a little bit more love for Lent than you had when you came in, or at least you have a better appreciation for the beautiful invitation that God is extending to us through this season as we prepare to receive the gift of new life that we'll celebrate on Easter. I know we've been in Lent for the past couple weeks, but because this season is so easily misunderstood, I want to just take a few minutes and give a quick recap for what we talk about when we talk about Lent. Lent is the 40-day period of preparation before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. Lent is either entirely ignored or it gets this bad rap as this super intense time where we need to get ourselves right with God. And it's It is a season of repentance, but at its heart, Lent is a journey of returning, of returning to the truth of who God is, of returning to the truth of who God has created us to be, and returning to the good story that God is writing in all of our world. And this truly is a returning. When we talk about repentance, the Greek word for that is metanoia. And if you know the connotation of that, it's a very embodied word. It's a very physical turning away from that that brings death towards the God who brings life. Benedictine nun Sister Joan Chittister says, the purpose of Lent is to confront ourselves in a way, and confront us with ourselves in a way that's conscious and purposeful, that enables us to deal with the rest of life well. Lent isn't a penitential season, it's a growing season. It requires us to determine what is worth dying for in our own lives and what may be necessary for us to become if we really want to live. What Lent does is it bids us turn away from all the things in our life that are bringing us death back towards the God who brings life. And what it what it does through that is invites us anew into the central Christian story of life, death, and resurrection. And we're not just invited to remember that that's something that Jesus did a long time ago. We're invited to experience that in our own lives. Lent is modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness preparing for his public ministry And that itself is modeled after the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness following their exodus from Egypt. When we talk about the Israelites' time in the wilderness, it's often talked about as a punishment. Like those guys just could not get their act together, so God gave them like a few decades of time out before they got to go into the promised land. But really what we see is that the Israelites' years in the wilderness are a time of deep preparation. This is necessary. In the wilderness, God's inviting the Israelites to return, hear it, to the truth of who God is and the truth of who God's created them to be so that they can receive the gift of the promised land. Because what happened after 400 years of slavery in Egypt is they've forgotten this. They've forgotten who God is. They've forgotten who they are. And so they're unable to live into the promised land in the way that God has created them to. 
God's preparing them to receive the gift of the promised land. Their time in the wilderness is a mercy. It's not a punishment. And this is exactly what God is doing in us through the season of Lent. Lent is a mercy for us. It's not a punishment. God is preparing us to receive the gift of new life that we're about to celebrate in two weeks on Easter. We're turning away from that that brings death towards the God who is always bringing life. And this is precisely what we're going to explore through our lectionary passages today, life, death, and resurrection. We've been guided by the lectionary throughout the season of Lent, and I want you to imagine that today we've been kind of, the past few weeks we've been walking up this hill, and today we're at the top of this hill. And we get to see this panoramic view of the big picture of what God is doing. We get to see the grand narrative of what God is going to do through Jesus' death and then his, ultimately his resurrection. Today we get to see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're reminded that this is a good story. It's got a good ending. And we're going to need that because as we journey the next two weeks into the valley through Jesus' last week, through his gruesome death, and to his astonishing resurrection, we're going to need to remember the light at the end of this story because it gets really dark. So we'll begin in Ezekiel. You know it's a great day when the lectionary gives us Ezekiel. Usually Ezekiel doesn't get to come out and play because he's super intense. But today we get to go into Ezekiel. I love, this for me is like finding a Starburst pack with all pinks. Like I love, I love the Old Testament prophets. So anytime we get to talk about Old Testament prophets, it's a good day. Ezekiel is the third of the three major Old Testament prophets that we have along with Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he's a priest to the Israelites during one of the many horrific times in their history. Scholars believe the writings that we have in our Bible are from about a 20-year time period in Ezekiel's life from roughly 593 to 571 B.C., and he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. You may remember that the Israel was one united kingdom, then it splits. The northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians about 130-ish years earlier. And now the southern kingdom of Judah is under a 19-year siege from the big bad power at the time, which is Babylon. Judah finally falls to Babylon in 586, and what Babylon does is they take over the land and they exile all the Jewish people to Babylon. And it's during this Babylonian exile that Ezekiel receives this vision from God. And so as we read through this, I want you to understand that this vision comes during a time when God's people have lost literally everything. They've lost their homes. They've lost their land. They've lost their freedom. They've lost their future. And it feels like they've lost their God. This is a religion at the time that worships God in a place, in a temple. The temple has been destroyed. This is a people who are defined by the promised land that God gave them, that God took them miraculously into, and that has been conquered. They have been taken out of that land into a foreign land where they are now living as exiles in Babylon. Verse 1 begins, The hand of the Lord was on me, and God brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. God led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. God asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then God said to me, 
Prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as God commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then God said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Pretty interesting little vision for Ezekiel. And like all of scripture, this is functioning on a bunch of different levels at the same time. So first, it is this deep message of hope and restoration for God's people at that specific time. It foreshadows their eventual return to their land, which happens a few decades later when Babylon gets conquered by the next big bad empire, which is Persia. It also, though, is foreshadowing what God is going to do hundreds of years later through Jesus' death and resurrection. This passage is not just about restoration, about bringing God's people back to their physical land. It's about resurrection. These bones are dry because they're dead. They have no breath in them because they have no life in them. What God is doing in breathing on these bones and bringing them back to life is resurrection. I will open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That is exactly what God does with Jesus. Opens up the grave. Jesus comes up out of the grave. And who does Jesus send to us at Pentecost? The spirit, the breath comes to live in us so that we can live. And this connects us to the grand narrative of God because the breath that brings the dry bones to life in Ezekiel chapter 37 is a direct echo of what? Genesis chapter 2, when God creates humanity. So Genesis chapter 1, we get kind of the big picture, how God creates everything. Genesis chapter 2 is like the zoomed-in version of God creating humanity. And what we see in verse 7 of chapter 2 is, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. 
you hear this? I have no chill about how cool this is. Like, this is so, so cool, you guys. Like, Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones coming to life is like this Tim Burton kind of reimagining of Genesis 2. We don't get this like sweet little clay version. We get these like creepy bones. But it is the same point is being made in both of these passages. It's God's breath that brings life. Apart from God, there is no life. Apart from God, there is just dust and dry bones. And you know I love how this brings us full circle back to Lent because where do we start Lent? We start Lent with this exact passage of ashes and dust. Remember that you are dust and unto dust you shall return. We start Lent with the remembering that without God's breath in us, we are just dust. Apart from God, there is no life. It is God's breath that turns the dust into a living being. It is God's breath that brings these bones to life. And it is God's breath that is still breathing life into us today. We get to see this come together really powerfully in our next lectionary passage for today, our gospel, which is John 11, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead with his breath, with his words. Here's a sketch of this story from a little-known painter named Rembrandt. Um, he went on to actually paint this, but completely changed his perspective on it. And I like this better. So we get to look at this today. Um, Rembrandt is known, if you know about him, he's known for his use of light and dark. And so look at how Lazarus in the middle, kind of bottom third, is coming up entirely in the light. He's rising entirely into the light. And what's even more fascinating is if you look at how Rembrandt sketches Jesus. Also, this is, this is a pencil. He's sketching this with charcoal pencils, which is amazing. But look at how Jesus has his back to the darkness and his front to the light. And his hand is up as Lazarus comes out of the tomb. It's fascinating. Last week, Carrie beautifully introduced this passage through the lens of liminal space exploring how we experience God when God doesn't show up in the way we want God to or the way we wish God would. If you missed her message, definitely give it a listen later because we're skipping straight to the good part of this story. We're going right to the end where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Quick note on the context of this passage, we only find this particular miracle in the Gospel of John. Doesn't mean it's not true. John does his own thing, um, as my three-year-old likes to say. And every gospel writer has their own kind of audience, their own purpose, their own purview. And John's is cosmic. John is continually connecting us back to the big picture story of God. John wants us to see that this is a good story with a good ending. We believe John's gospel was written toward the end of the first century. And like Ezekiel, John is writing to God's people at a pretty dark time in their history. They need to be reminded that it's got a good ending. By now, most of the early Christians have died out, often in pretty nasty ways, as martyrs. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed again. And it's becoming more and more clear that maybe that thousand years is like a day to God is actually true, and Jesus might not be coming back imminently. And so they're trying to figure out what they do now, how they live now. And as with all of scripture, this moment in Jesus' life when he resurrects his good friend Lazarus is operating on all these different levels. 
from a literary perspective in the Gospel of John, it's the pinnacle of John's Gospel. It's not the end of John's Gospel, but it's the climax of John's Gospel. John gives us two really interesting kind of literary devices throughout his Gospel to show us, one, that Jesus is God, and two, that what God is like through what we're learning about Jesus. And so the two devices are, first, the miracles. John gives us a bunch of different miracles that Jesus is doing in his gospel. And the resurrection of Lazarus is the crescendo of all those miracles. In the same way, John also gives us a bunch of statements where Jesus says, I am this, to tell us about his divinity and to tell us what God's like. So I am the bread of life. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these are statements designed to show us about that Jesus is God and about what God is like. And the crescendo of those statements is also in this passage where Jesus says to Martha after she says, My, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And, he, and Martha had this fascinating conversation, which the pinnacle of which is him saying, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Historically, the raising of Lazarus is also the tipping point in Jesus' ministry that sets the events of his own death and resurrection into motion. In most of his other miracles, Jesus is keeping it quiet. He's saying, hey, don't tell anybody, or he's asking people not to spread the word. This is a big, intentionally public display of his power. We know that Lazarus and his sisters are a prominent family in Bethany. Bethany is close to Jerusalem. This is right around the Passover. And so Jesus bringing a dead guy back to life is a big deal. And word about it spreads like wildfire. This miracle is why there's so much momentum along the streets when Jesus comes into Jerusalem next week on Palm Sunday. They're shouting Hosanna because this guy literally just brought a guy back from the dead. And this is why the Pharisees are pushed over the line. Turns out they had a line and it was bringing a guy back from the dead. And they just, and that is what causes them to finally say, we got to get rid of him. He's too much. Theologically, we don't have time to get into all of this, but I just want you to notice, this is a really fascinating foreshadow of what Jesus' own death and resurrection are going to look like. It's like Jesus is giving everybody this preview of a movie they don't know they're about to see, and then they completely forget that they saw the preview when they actually see the movie, and everybody's like, what happened? They forget that he literally just did this. And in the cosmic sense that so much of what John's communicating to us through his gospel, this shows us what God is doing in the big picture through Jesus' death and resurrection. One of the ways John gives us a cosmic sense, one of the ways he loves to connect us to the grand narrative of God is by deliberately echoing Genesis. Do you remember how John's gospel starts out? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John's constantly saying, remember this? This is all part of the same story. Remember that part? It's all part of the same story, except look at how Jesus is advancing this story. Look at what we're learning now about God through Jesus. And so we find that again in John chapter 11 as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. What John does here is amazing. It's an almost line-by-line -line reversal of what we see happen in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve doubt God and eat the fruit. 
So let's look at the last two verses of this chapter, John 11, verses 43 and 44. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So in Genesis 3, we know Adam and Eve doubt God and they eat the fruit in the garden. And what we see is a covering, then we see a hiding, and ultimately we see death, right? So in Genesis, Adam and Eve are sentenced to death. Here, Lazarus is brought back to life. Adam and Eve hide from God. After they eat the fruit, they hide, and God's walking in the cool of the evening when they used to walk together with God, and God's calling out to them, where are you? They're in hiding. Here we see Jesus go to the tomb where Lazarus has been placed and call him by name out. Lazarus, come out. Come out of hiding. And Adam and Eve cover themselves out of shame. And what we see at the end of this passage is Jesus commanding that they take off the coverings of Lazarus, take off the grave clothes, and let him go. This itself echoes God's very words to Pharaoh when, he, when God comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Which John, I get the sense, is like jumping up and down, being like, I cannot make it any more obvious for you guys. This is about freedom. And this is about how Jesus' own death and resurrection redeems the fall. It redeems all of the brokenness that has come before and invites all of us, all of creation, into God's resurrected life. So in Genesis 3, we see a covering, we see a hiding, and we see death. And here in John 11, what we see is we see life. We see a foundness. They're called by God. Lazarus is called by God. And we see a removal, a taking off, an unbinding of the things that have kept Lazarus in death. Remember that what Lent is doing is inviting us in a new way into the central Christian story of life, death, and resurrection. And we are all Lazarus. God is calling all of us by name out of death into life. God is breathing onto our dry bones that we may rise and live. And God is saying, take off the grave clothes and let my people go. I love this icon of this story because you can see, if you see kind of in that bottom right-hand side, there's a figure grabbing the grave clothes, and starting the process of unwinding, of unbinding Lazarus to let him go. And the grave clothes are symbolic for everything that keeps us hidden, keeps us bound, keeps us separated from God, that keeps us from being fully seen and fully known just as we are. These could be lies, they could be destructive habits, they could be unhealed hurts that have led to these narratives about God, unmet expectations, the future looks different than you thought it would, 
God isn't doing what you would do if you were God, what you begged God to do. Anything that keeps us from full experience of life with God. For me personally, I'm in a season where I'm watching a lot of dreams that I had for the future and expectations of how I thought things were going to look die. I don't know what resurrection looks like here yet. All I see are dry, dead bones for the most part. I'm like Mary and Martha and my brother is dead in the tomb. He's been there for four days. I don't see new life yet. I don't know what it looks like. I just see a lot of death. But as I continue to sit with this and I continue to stay awake to it and open to it, which is the hardest part, as I continue to allow myself to bring it into conversation and prayer with God, what I'm noticing is this, that very gently and very kindly, God is starting to tug on some of these grave clothes, starting to gently unwrap some of the lies that I believed about God, that I believed about myself. Some of the narratives that I've used to make sense of things that are not true. And as God unwraps our grave clothes, what we find is these wounds. And they're exposed to the light, and what God can do is start to heal them. And that's what resurrection starts to look like. When God, who is the breath, breathes life, and we get to more fully live as the people God has created us to be. So this is the image I invite you to take into your own conversation with God this week. We're preparing to receive God's gift of new life on Easter. And so what we want to ask God is what are the metaphorical grave clothes that you're asking to gently unwind? What are you asking to release so that I am more fully and freely empowered to live as the daughter and the son that you've created me to be? What are you wanting to free me from so that I can return to the truth of who you are, God, to the truth of who you've created me to be, and to live into the fullness of this new life that you are always breathing in? As we close, I want to read a blessing by the artist Jan Richardson over you. This is called The Lazarus Blessing. And I encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes or to lower your eyes and hold your hands out and just let the beauty of her words wash over you. The secret of this blessing is that it is written on the back of what binds you. To read this blessing, you must take hold of the end of what confines you, must begin to tug at the end of what wraps you round. It may take long and long for its length to fall away, for the words of this blessing to unwind in folds about your feet. By then you will no longer need them. By then this blessing will have pressed itself into your waking flesh, will have passed into your bones, will have traveled every vein, until it comes to rest inside the chambers of your heart that beats to the rhythm of benediction 
and the cadence of release. May it be so. Amen.